0: Welcome to The Decline of the Western Civilizations. Thank you for
1: joining us. My name's Dylan. Hey, what's up? I'm Zach, and I'll be your co-pilot on this audio trip through time. So Dylan, what do you have for us to talk about?
0: First, let's talk briefly about what our goals are going to be for this series, and why we've gone through the trouble of making it. Then we're going to dive into the prehistory of the history of California, and discover the origin of the word California. Sounds good. So starting with the very, very basics, this is a history series. We'll be covering historical events and trends as they occurred in and relating to California. In some installments, we'll also jump out of chronological order to cover relevant people, topics, ideas, etc.
1: This will give us, your hosts, some mobility and provide you, the listener, with more context.
0: It's also going to make research and preparation a bit more fun for us.
1: Yeah, this, this sounds great. You know, I, I love being a Californian, and I, I think I live a great California lifestyle, so I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here. Why California? I know it's a special place mm-hmm. uh, to me and you. We're from here. But you tell me why the average Joe or Josephina should care about California.
0: Why California? California is our nation's most populous state and third-largest by area. It boasts the nation's second-largest city. Californians make up more than 12% of our nation's entire population the single largest state economy, sixth largest economy in the world as of 2016, the highest and lowest natural points in the contiguous United States, 840 miles of coastline. The Golden State grows nearly half of the nation's fruits, vegetables, and nuts. California has the largest number of white Americans of any state, but it's also home to the largest minority population. People of color make up 60% of California's population. Los Angeles County alone, where Zach and I are from, as the largest Thai community outside of Thailand, the largest Iranian community outside of Iran. There are more American Indians living in California than any other state. There are over 200 languages spoken and read in this state. California is home to the largest Mormon population outside of Utah. It's home to the United States' largest Muslim community. It's the birthplace of Scientology and the Church of Satan, the home of sourdough bread, the frisbee, skateboarding, electric guitar, blue jeans, popsicles, iPods,
1: cell phone cameras, the hula hoop, Barbie, the French dip, wetsuits, the laser, WD 40, the wah wah pedal, Cinco de Mayo, the cheeseburger, and McDonald's, Disneyland, fortune cookies, the
0: boys loganberry, berry, Logan Berry, the smoothie, auto tune, the world's largest tree, hippie culture, Chicano
1: rock, the Bakersfield sound, the cable car, jukebox. Bikram Yoga, Slot Machines, Water Beds, Bigfoot, Raw, Foodieism, Google, America's First Openly Gay Politician, The Cobb Salad, Hybrid Cars, The Largest Buddhist Temple in the Americas, The Richter Scale,
0: Television, the international film, television, music and pornography industries. Holy
1: cow, dude, this is this is a lot of stuff. I mean, California is so massive and diverse, and it's wealthy and it it demands attention on the world stage.
0: But let me ask you this, Zach. Shoot. How much do you know about California
1: before statehood? Oh man, well I I guess not very much. I mean, I should know more. There, there are, were the Spanish missions, of course. The El Camino Real and, and the Gold Rush, but that's kind of about it. Yeah, and I don't think
0: uh, yours would be an unusual response for a lot of Californians. The histories of Spanish North America aren't usually included in our understanding of American history because they exist outside of the political and cultural boundaries set up by the you know history of the United States. But that view of history is arbitrarily exclusive and ignores centuries of human settlement and political development. If we really are going to appreciate and understand California as it is now on its own merits, we should start by taking a look at its origins. Alright man, I am ready. Please fill this historical gap. We'll get ready to embrace our state's history. With any luck, we won't just be listing dates and names. We're also going to talk a bit about historiography.
1: What's... what's that? What's historiography?
0: Historiography is the study of the history of the histories.
1: Oh, so it's kind of like how history has been portrayed through time.
0: Right, and how this accumulation of different historical interpretations has colored our understanding of the past today. This isn't a revisionist history, is it? Maybe. With any luck, we're going to revise some incorrect assumptions. And hopefully, by being as holistic as possible, by taking a look at multiple sources and perspectives, including archaeology, indigenous accounts, by taking a look at the viewpoint of missionaries and feminist histories, we'll attempt to provide as an inclusive view of history as possible. But it was mostly Spanish white dudes doing
1: most of the writing, yeah?
0: You know, we'll have to take their words with a grain of salt because they're the ones that did the writing. We're going to be quoting a lot of them. They're the individuals that controlled the historic narrative. Also, for full disclosure, Zach and I are also white guys. Uh, we don't speak Spanish, and we are working from translations. If you listen to us and think we're awful and think that you can do a better podcast, then we support you absolutely 110%. Yeah, so how many eons will we be time-traveling through? Oh, a tighter range than that, less than an eon. We're just going to be covering a period from 1500 to 1850. (laughs) Why then? 1500 to 1850 is known as the Spanish-Mexican period of California's history. And of course... That is a label created hundreds of years after the fact by historians. Not everyone living in that historic time period who lived within the borders inked on a map would have recognized the authority of the Spanish and later Mexican governments. Some groups who lived within these borders might not
1: even have had direct contact with the Spaniards and Mexicans at all. So, let's start from the very beginning here. When do the Spaniards become aware of this concept, California?
0: California, as a word and place, enters into the mental framework of the Spanish in the early 1500s,
1: maybe as early as 1508. So, where is the evidence for that? I mean, uh, where where does the word even even come from? I mean, California is on the other side of the globe. Where where do they get the idea of this great place to travel to?
0: You know, that is that's a great question. For as much as the word California is said, it's interesting to think that the origin of the word is not better known. We say it so often. It's, it's like it's like potato. You know, uh, the meaning of the word is the thing. They've become inseparable, and the original etymology can get lost. California,
2: California,
1: California,
2: California, All the California. California,
1: California, beautiful and sun drenched yeah yeah of course california and and how how is it pronounced i mean uh what is what is the real pronunciation from fifteen o eight what do you think it like sounded like or well i i don't know early modern spanish, but i'm pretty sure california so like how we say it now would would there be different spelling
0: c a l i f o r n i a just like today whoa, so nothing's changed same word but you know For a very long time, people did not know the origin of the word. Uh, The origin had been lost for centuries. What do you mean lost? In 1758, the Padre Miguel Venegas wrote,
1: I could wish to gratify the reader by the etymology and true origin of this name, but none of the various dialects of the natives could the missionaries find the least traces of such name being given by them to the country,
0: or even to any harbor, bay, or small part of it. Padre Miguel Venegas, 1758. 1758, gone, completely forgotten. Two hundred short years after the word first appears on the map.
1: So, 1758. That's that's quite a bit later in history.
0: Yeah, in about two hundred years, the name went from relevant to complete gibberish.
1: So it it could it could mean anything. I mean, but does it mean anything? It's Spanish? Maybe it's something in Spanish? There have been scholars who did try to deconstruct
0: the word to discover its origin. Uh it's maybe something Greek. The thirteenth century Spanish legal text, La siete Partidas, does mention a woman named California. That's with a U instead of an O. California appears to be the same person as a Kale-fernia, who appears in a German legal text, the Sachsenspiegel, also from the thirteenth century.
1: Wow, that's that's pretty close. I mean uh, who is California.
0: Unfortunately, who she was isn't super clear. Her name appears in a passage regarding the moral and physical attributes required to be a lawyer. A lawyer may be anyone who is not a criminal, blind, mentally ill, or a woman. As evidence for why this should be so, Las Sietas Partidas cites the following example. No woman, even if she is knowledgeable, may be a lawyer in court for another, and this is for two reasons. The first, because it is neither desirable nor honest for women to take up office as a man by being publicly involved with men to reason for another. The second, because the ancients forbade it due to a woman named California, who was wise, but so shameless. So angry at the judges with her voice that they
1: could not stand her. I have seen that when women lose their shame, it is a difficult thing to listen. To contend with them. And taking into account the evil they suffered from the voices of California,
0: the ancients paid that no woman
2: could reason for
1: another. So California is an ancient woman lawyer. I mean, that's that's cool. I that's I've never heard of that before. But but this is this is an absurd law. I mean, and just because like a a man might be outwitted by a woman in court and and be somehow emasculated by this experience, and and then no women are allowed to participate in being lawyers at all, and that's just garbage. Yeah, patriarchy
0: is a very real and very petty thing. The argument against allowing women to be lawyers admits right out that women have the ability to out-argue men. But the fragility of patriarchy and ultimately the feudal system was so great that a woman's equality to a man in any field could threaten to topple the entire unjust system and could not have been allowed. There's any evidence of California
1: or California?
0: We can track that name by searching for early European legal justifications, for why women ought not to be lawyers. Uh, that will lead us to the Roman jurist Ulpian, who died in the third century of the Common Era. He wrote about a woman named uh, Carpania, or Calpurnia. The third
1: century?
0: In his work, Ulpian was actually citing an even earlier writer, uh, Valerius Maximus, who wrote between the years 14 and 37 of the Common Era. He wrote about a similar woman.
1: Caia Afrenia, the senator Licinius Buco's wife, against whom a lawsuit was pending, always spoke for herself personally before the Praetor, not because she did not have a lawyer, but because she had a lot of impudence. Thus she kept bothering the courts with her barking, unusual in court, and she became a well-known example of female pedophagery, until the name of Kaia phrenia was used to refer to the crime of women with impudent habits. Wallerus Maximus facta et dicta memorabilia.
0: Maximus goes on to say that Caia Afrania died during the second consulship of Julius Caesar. That's... 48 before common era. <laughs> oh
1: my gosh. I mean this this is a timeline. I mean and, and on top of it it's, this isn't the entire justification for legal misogyny in the western world. It's 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 all pinned on this one woman who fought doggedly for her own representation. This this is bizarre and, and I believe it because it's so bizarre. It's that, that nearly 2000 years of women being prevented from being lawyers just because of this nonsense. But as as much as California is a radical, powerful woman, she's definitely not a place.
0: There is a reference to a Califurn as a place in the 11th century French epic La Chanson de Roland.
1: Where Where's that?
0: Uh, It might have been a real place with significance to contemporary readers. It might not have been. It's nowhere that can be pinpointed on a map today. In the tale, Califern is paired with Africa and mentioned as a
1: hostile land to Christianity. California, Califern, I mean, but when do we find the origins of our California, Dylan?
0: Actually, it was until a hundred years after Padre Venegas wrote that the Unitarian minister Edward Everett Hale came across the word California while reading an old medieval romance. (laughs) And that... That was just sitting in some archive, right? Probably just moldering away in some archive. If, if we can digress just for a little bit, we should talk about medieval romances for people who aren't familiar with the genre, because that's where we find both Califern
1: and California. I'm guessing this has something to do with the uh, Knights of the Round Table kind of thing, uh, Tales of Arthur. Yeah, you, you got it. Yeah, and, and Arthur, King Arthur, the story of the fantasy Europe... Yeah, but it's historical, and this, kind of. And this evidence you're talking about is for Arthur, and, and Excalibur, and Merlin, you know, and wizards, and know, dragons. And... The people of the medieval period believed it was a type of history. Now, they were reading the Wait, things... Wait, there's a moral to these stories, right? Or
0: Kind of. Uh, but the morality of the stories is different from what we practice today because their culture was different than ours. The audience for the romances were even more interested in chivalry and what they might have considered to be politically and religiously justifiable violence. The chivalry and the world of the medieval romance is a land of noblemen who kill monsters, fight battles, father bastards, and feast. Uh, there's no interest in details like taxes and peasants and making sure people are fed and accountability. It's not about that. It's about epic, pulse-pounding adventure as experienced by
1: uh, the elite classes. So, uh... All over Europe, people are writing these romances, and they're being published, and uh, are they known by both high and low class, or are are people, how are they getting this entertainment? Well, in the time we're talking
0: about the early 1500s, the printing press had been around for 50, 60 years. There had been a boom in communications in Europe and in the market for books. These stories and all sorts of printed information are being spread faster than ever before so anyone who is literate can maybe get an opportunity to read one of these books or be present at a reading. Readings themselves were a very popular form of entertainment and the books were written in such a way so that they directly addressed their audience. So even if you were illiterate, you can still be able to hear these stories.
1: So what story
0: does California come from? The word comes from a book Based on a popular tale that had been in circulation through the fourteen hundreds and maybe as early as the mid
1: thirteen hundreds, it's called Amadis de Gaula. Is uh, is that like Gaul? Is is that in, in France, maybe? Or
0: uh, Gaula may be an early Spanish term for Wales in Britain, mm. or it may be a place name in Brittany. We'll we'll probably never know for sure. Amadis de Gaula is the tale of the adventures of the knight Amadis. And his eventual death at the hands of his own son Esplandián. This is a lot like the death of King Arthur, who was killed by his son Mordred. Amadis had been a very popular tale for over a hundred years, and many other authors had penned a version of the tale. In 1508, an author named García Rodríguez de Montalvo published his own version of the Amadis story. However, Montalvo added his
1: own twist. The unauthorized sequel. Wait, what do you what do you mean? He he invented the sequel? Like. Like, people weren't writing their own stories with uh, sagas and, you know? Yes and no, Uh, but the literature of this period followed a set structure.
0: The romances were hypothetically based on historical events and personages, and that's partially what gave them their gravitas. People in this time were very limited in the forms of literature that they may have encountered. An author was largely limited to retellings of stories already passed down. Your only other available examples of literature might have been translated, classical text passed down, and the Bible. You couldn't just tell a story about something you made up. The narrative form just wasn't ready. It, it wasn't valid. That's right. The literary technology for carrying those stories didn't exist yet. The audience was ready, but the means of delivery hadn't arrived.
1: So in order to tell a story of value, you need to have some kind of backing. So how does Garcia Rodriguez de Montalvo... Get away with this. I mean, how does he create a new popular story from nothing? He is the earliest known user of the literary
0: device known as the found manuscript. By claiming he is a found manuscript, Montalvo can write his additions to the Amadeus story beyond what has already been expounded over the past
1: century. Oh, whoa. So, like... Like, this is a loophole to make a sequel to a legend that everybody already knows. If you stumble across an ancient document with just more legend, I mean, and this is the first time this is
0: used? I think so. If, If not, it's one of the very earliest. It's like he fabricates a historical document, but because the medium is a story, he never has to show anyone the original, and... And the discovery of the document even becomes part of the story. So how did Montalvo find this document? The discovery is actually the opening to the sequel. Montalvo said that you know, he's in a bazaar in Eastern Spain, and he found this tome in an ancient hand, and he had to have it translated. And you know to his amazement, it so happened to be additional information about the son of Amadis, Esplandian. So uh, the new book was called Las Sergas de Esplandian. The Adventures of Esplendina. (laughs) Oh, no way. And and people are just eating this up
1: because it's brand new, right? Right,
0: right. People were ready for new material, but the delivery was only just arriving. writing. It's, It's writers like Montalvo who were experimenting with ways to tell a story that made the Renaissance the rebirth of arts and culture that it was. Montalvo was creating a new way for artists to interact and engage with their audience. He writes...
1: I corrected these three books of Amadi such as they could be read due to poor writers of very corrupt and dissolute scribes and translated and amended a fifth book, The Adventures of Esplandion, a sequel which up until now no one can recall seen. By great good fortune, it had been discovered in a stone tomb beneath an hermitage near Constantinople and was brought by a Hungarian merchant to eastern Spain in such ancient script and old parchment that it could only be read with much difficulty by those who knew the language. García Rodríguez de Mantalvo, Las Ergas de Esplandía. So he finds the, the great manuscript, which just so happens to be the sequel to this well-known popular story that everyone knows, and it's like he's, he's chosen, and, and it's so exotic, and he's so gifted, and... Even the story about obtaining this story, these papers, is interesting. They come from far away, they were in a, a tomb, and they went on an amazing journey. montovo finds it, and he brings it to light. He gets the credit and the glory, and, and, and of course now he's, he's the only available authority on the true story.
0: I think modern audiences might be turned off if they were presented with a similar explanation for a sudden sequel. Like, imagine if a popular ghostwriter today just showed up and said they had discovered a Great Gatsby 2, The Further Adventures of Nick. I don't think people would buy it. Not at all. (laughs) But you have to remember that translations of ancient texts were being rediscovered and disseminated from Europe at this exact same time. Uh, Greek and Latin texts translated into European languages from Arabic were being read in Europe sometimes for the first time in centuries. And ironically, that world
1: made Montalvo's explanation more credible. That's that's right, because... uh... There's this huge exchange between East and West going on. You got Constantinople, which fell to the Muslim Turks in 1452. The Emirate of Granada fell to the Christians in Spain in 1492. Uh, This was just a major cultural and and power shift in the Mediterranean world. There was this huge corresponding shift of ideas and people and, and trade that was all happening in the decades just before Montalvo was writing.
0: Montalvo was able to tap into the moods and insecurities of the world around him, and he used it to punch up his fiction. He took this popular interest in ancient translations and combined it with the ancient romance genre. And that's not even to say that his audience didn't understand that Montalvo was the author of his found document. The audience probably enjoyed Montalvo's deceit because it was the vessel that allowed the story to continue. So why did
1: people like this Book aside from being new,
0: or? well, apparently it was just you know very very good. Uh, Montalvo's Amadis with las Sergas de espandian enjoyed ten editions between fifteen ten and fifteen eighty eight. Other authors even began copying the found manuscript device and adding on to Montalvo's work, continuing the Amadis stories. Uh, there was uh, Lizuarte of Greece, which came out in fifteen fourteen, but wasn't at all popular. There was uh, Amadis of Greece, the manuscript for which had supposedly been found in a wooden box behind a wall in a cave. Um, there was Silves of the Jungle of uh, 1546, and that had been supposedly found in the magical castle of Amaris himself, and so on and so on. Uh, many authors had tried their hand. Uh, manuscripts were supposedly discovered in distant castles and during voyages to far-off lands. They were translated from Hungarian, Latin, Etruscan, German, even Chaldean. Montalvo's Amadeus stories and its sequels were so popular that they
1: took a whole century to jump the shark. Jump. Jump the shark. What's that? You don't
0: know jump the shark?
1: No, I've. This isn't. I've never heard of this metaphor. It's it's a
0: reference to
1: Jaws. To
0: Happy Days. Oh, no, oh, no, it is not Yeah, yeah, you know, it's the point, you know, where Fonzie, he's you know, in his leather jacket on water skis, and he's oh, about to... he jumps a shark! <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the point in the progression of a series where the plot lines aren't realistic or relatable to the original anymore. So so why are you even bothering continue? Why is the show about 50s and Richie if it just devolves into wacky Fonzie
1: adventures? <laughs> I, love, I love Jump the Shark. I'm going to use it all the time. I mean, anyways... Well when when does the story jump the shark?
0: 1605 and that's when a flattering imitation of the adventure genre was written. and that book's actually still read today. What book is that? The book is Don Quixote by Miguel
1: Cervantes. Oh okay, I, I've heard of Don Quixote. Uh, he's he's like this old guy and he, he goes around and he's fighting windmills and and that's that's the parody I, uh, so so you're telling me that it you're telling me that it took a hundred years for Montalvo's Amadis to go from. Cutting edge to, like, satire? Yeah. Wow, I mean, people were not funny. Uh, but it, but it's because of these changes and
0: innovations uh, that Renaissance writers like Montalvo brought us that uh, we can have self-reflexive satire. By the 1600s, when Don Quixote is published, we're entering what, in art history, is called the Baroque period, and the audience is ready for art that is self-aware.
1: So what are the literary jokes within Don Quixote that are
0: referencing Amadis? The entire book is a send-up of the chivalric knight and the medieval epic. The hero isn't a hardy young cavalier on a pious mission. Don Quixote is an old bachelor who gets badly beaten when he tries to fight. He's been driven mad by literature, all these adventure stories he's collected. The joke of the character of Don Quixote is that uh, in the structure of the medieval romance, he's forced to deal with the mundane realities of 16th century Spain. The premise for the entire Don Quixote story is that it's based on a found document. In the text, Cervantes, he doesn't claim to be the author. He claims that he's heard things about Don Quixote and has been merely collecting documents and clarifying tales already out there, and that's what his book is. That it isn't a fiction created by himself out of nowhere. Just like Amadis. Whoa. Yeah, a great example of this is in chapter 8. It ends with a cliffhanger. Don Quixote is in a sword fight but the chapter ends mid-fight, near the mid-sentence, because Cervantes says that he's, he's run out of source material and he's unable to continue the story.
1: There's, there's no more story to be told because there is nothing there in the first place. That's, that's, that's genius. There's no more tale to tell. Here the record ends. And,
0: you know, that might be something you could come across in a medieval history and record, because books and sources were lost to the ages and there would be no more story to tell. But, you know, the Don Quixote story does not end there. There is a manuscript found that keeps the plot going oh well, just so happens just so happens uh, chapter nine begins with cervantes uh, the author and now a character in his own story just like our guy montalvo and he's he's walking in a market and he sees a boy collecting paper scraps to be turned into rags and he notices uh some some arabic script on this on the rags so uh, he gives the boy a small coin and he has the text translated on the cheap and Lo and behold, it, it happens to be the continuation of the Don Quixote tale. No way!
1: That's hilarious. And and it's it's smart because I mean he's kind of riffing off this, this idea of the trash. And there's there's kids selling trash, and he found the secret lore in the trash, and Don Quixote himself is he's trash, he's mad, he's he's a broken man who's fighting windmills, whose story was found in the garbage. He's a he's like a garbage man. Yeah, he's gone
0: mad because of the trash fantasy literature he's been reading, including Amadis de Gaula. There is a scene in the novel set in La Mancha, Don Quixote's hometown, where the priest and the barber are going through Don Quixote's library, They're looking for dangerous books to burn. Don Quixote's adventure romances. And the first book they grab is Montalvo's Amadis de Gaula both the priest and the barber agree that it should not be destroyed, because as the barber concludes...
1: I've heard it said that it is the best of all the books of this kind ever written, and so it should be pardoned. Wow, I, I think this is very interesting. I mean, there are these two characters, and at the time, you know, one of them... Works in the house of God and has the authority, and then there's this other guy who's like a—he's visceral. He does bloodletting, and because you know traditionally barbers they didn't just do shaves and haircuts—you know—they were the healers, they were the surgeons and the dentists, and they were—they were performing trepanation. I mean, I mean, anyways, uh, I think the comedy of this novel is very perceptive. I, uh, w- why it's lasted this long, and and really it has to do with this parody of this kind of masculine imagery, this cobbled-together image of chivalry and, and how Don Quixote tries to assemble it out of pots and pans and, and he, it could barely be standing underneath its own weight and it's no longer relevant, but people are still living this kind of dream, this fantasy.
0: When you're dressing up as an Arthurian knight and trying to live a fantasy life um, in the early 17th century, it, it, it would have to be ridiculous. When you hold yourself to standards from 100 years ago, it's, it's going to be comical. And I think you're right. I think that Cervantes was maybe addressing his audience about the need to grow up in terms of sophistication in literature, that literature could now go beyond men attacking monsters with swords.
1: But these, these two men, I mean, we got the priest and the barber, and they're agreeing that Amadis is the purest and best source of this kind of literature, that Cervantes puts those words in the character's mouth that's very interesting. Ironically, though, Amadis really stops being read as
0: literature after audiences in Spain find out that they'd rather read the Baroque satire of Don Quixote. But that's that's all right because Amadis lives on as the subject of a number of operas in the Baroque and early classical periods, most famously by Johann Christian Bach, son of Johann Sebastian Bach. <laughs>
1: All right, now, before we get completely off topic, let's get back to California. The word comes from this book, Amadeus de Gaula, and the word first appears in 1508 in the version written by García Rodriguez de Montalvo. Specifically
0: in his innovative edition, Las Sergas de Esplandian*. And, and this is the part where
1: Montalvo has
0: created it entirely by himself, right? Correct. Okay. From this point on, it's all Montalvo's imagination. Uh, the episode in The Adventures of Esplandian that concerns us is the Siege of Constantinople by the Turks. Now, Montalvo's Amadis dates itself as taking place sometime between the death of Christ but before the death of King Arthur. Uh, so we have to remember that historicity is not the point and Montalvo is writing to entertain primarily. He's, he's saying to us that this, this took place a long time ago, uh, far, far away. Esplandian, son of Amadis arrives on the scene with his knightly retainers and his ally, the giant Balan, to defend Constantinople. A giant? A giant. It's very much like the adventure fantasy of the Lord of the Rings. Esplendian and his motley band of warriors must lift the siege and drive back the Turkish sultan who, to Montalvo and the Renaissance Spanish mind, could be a stand-in for everything foreign and dangerous to the Christian-European Weltanschauung, its worldview. So if it's a fantasy, why bother with the real setting at all? I mean, why Constantinople? Because it's the classic European narrative of the Christian knight driving back the other from the east. Constantinople did fall to the Turks in the century before Montalvo was writing, so Montalvo could be interpreted to be offering his readers a more palatable alternative to historical events and Christians fighting Muslims for control of a city is a conflict that resonated with his Spanish audience. Matalvo described a number of heathen allies of the Turks before coming to this particular description.
2: Now you are to hear the most extraordinary thing that was ever heard in any chronicles or in the memory of man. Know then that on the right hand of the Indies there is an island called California, very close to the side of the terrestrial paradise, and it was peopled by black women without any man among them, for they lived in the fashion of Amazons. They were of strong and hardy bodies of ardent courage and great force. Their island was the strongest in all the world with its deep cliffs and rocky shores. Their arms were full of gold and so was the harness of the griffins, which they tamed and rode. For in the whole island, there was no metal but gold. They lived in caves, wrought out of rock with much labor. They had many ships, for which they sailed out to other countries to obtain booty.
1: Oh, okay. This is a 70s black exploitation movie. I mean... Uh, uh. Out of this story of of knights in Europe, there are these these black warrior women. It's like absurd and funky, and it's and the description of these women they're 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 Amazonian women. No men. No men. They just breed with the men, then throw them to the griffins. <laughs> and they have griffins. I mean, and and then there's they're mythical characters, and they're everything that's not the Christian warrior. The opposite of the chauvinistic white male Christian knight is or. Are these black, female, pagan Amazon with their their own wealth and their their gilded and gold, and of course you see this man versus woman, black versus white, Christian versus pagan, such an obvious binary.
0: I think if you were a lover of medieval romances, then this is probably one of the most amazing
1: and perhaps titillating tales you could get your hands on. It's weird, but it kind of fits perfectly into the Arthurian romance world of violence and masculinity. The Californians are everything that is dangerous, a temptation to the Christian Knights, and they come from the edge of of paradise, not far from the Garden of Eden. And that's why the Californians can be so fantastic, because they live
0: on the edge of reality. That's why there can be griffins and just gold. And it's another example of classical mythology thought creeping in, in the form of griffins and Amazons.
1: So California is full of coastal-dwelling Amazonian women. Do they have a ruler? There is a queen of California by the name of (laughs) Calafia. And what does Montalvo have to say about her?
2: There reigned in this island of California a queen, very large in person, the most beautiful of all of them, of blooming years, and in her thoughts, desirous of achieving great things. Strong of limb, and of great courage, more than any of those had filled her throne before her. She heard tell that all the greater part of the world was moving in this onslaught against the Christians.
0: In Montalvo's story, Calafia and her Californians joined the armies of the Turks and attacked Constantinople on the backs of the gilded Griffins. But the Californians' Griffins had only been trained to attack men, unable to tell Christians and Muslims apart, the Griffins ended up harming more than helping their Turkish allies. The brave women of California were forced to fight on foot, but their gold weapons and armor were no match for the cold steel of the Christians. The women of California were eventually forced to capitulate and
1: convert to Christianity. Whoa, that's a, that's a bummer. So so this name, Califia, and sounds kind of familiar to me. I mean, it sounds like um, Caliph, which is an Arabic political and religious title, right?
0: You're absolutely right. Uh, caliph in Arabic is califa, and in Spanish califa. Uh, calafia, the name of our Californian queen, isn't much of a stretch. After that, we can also look at this root word caliph in the context of a uh, califern in La Chanson de Roland. Califern was a land counted as an enemy of Charlemagne, and again associated with Africa more than with Europe. Califern may have well been a word once associated with the idea of the caliphate.
1: So, California means land of the Lady Caliph?
0: I think that is a fair translation. Our state is the land of the woman Caliph. By making the story's antagonists both female and pagan, Montalvo makes the justification for their conquest an obvious to his audience. To the medieval Christians, the women would have needed to be saved from
1: themselves. Uh, the, the submission and conversion of these women is, is very intense. I mean, coming just after the Reconquista of Spain, uh, Las Sergas de Esplandien was published within living memory of the conquest and sack of the Emirate of Granada. The absorption of ethnically and religious diverse population by Spain was not the smoothest of processes. I mean, what would happen to the queen after this battle? Queen Calafia
0: requested to marry Esplandian, you know, because he is the hero and the greatest of warriors. But this whole Constantinople adventure is actually only a side story in the greater Esplandian narrative. Uh, Calafia was unfortunately not written as Esplandian's main love interest. Esplandian actually marries Calafia off to his cousin, Talenque, who, you know, he was a prince in his own right. Ugh, oh, that's
1: so weird. It's... It's like to, to beat an adversary and and then marry them off to your cousin. I mean, it's it's a demotion and it's it's grotesque. She she used to be a queen and at the edge of paradise, and it's it's just all been swept away. And I mean, it it kind of reminds me of California in a way. Calafia and California are both women who can compete and overpower men on a one to one basis. But because of their ability, which threatens the myth of this, you know, cultural pillar of male supremacy, these women are silenced by the state. Califia is made subservient by marriage, and California is prohibited to practice law. This Amadei story, with all its,
0: you know, heroism and white Christian male chicanery, it's being read by and to people who participated in the Reconquista, and they reading it and sharing it with their children in the next generation after that. It's being spread across Europe. And like I said, it was extremely popular. Geez, do, do we have any contemporary reviews? Uh, Francois Delanois, a Huguenot captain who fought and died in the bloody religious wars of the 16th century, he said that Amadis de Gaula filled his generation with un esprit de vertige, the spirit of vertigo. Whoa, so, so they're like tripping off of this story. They're inspired, to say the least. You know, some of these men. Second sons of noble families, men with little to lose. They took their high spirits, their spirit of vertigo, with them across the Atlantic to find adventure and fortune in the Americas. One of these men was Bernal Diaz del Castillo. We mentioned him earlier.
1: Yeah, yeah, I remember this guy, yeah. Diaz was
0: a conquistador from Spain. He had traveled with Cortez from Cuba to the Yucatan, and Diaz was with Cortez when the first Europeans laid eyes on the capital city of the Mexica people, the Nochtitlan, Many years later, he wrote this about his first impressions. And when we saw all those cities and villages built in the water, and those other great towns on dry land, and that straight and level causeway leading to Mexico, we were astounded. These great towns and temples and buildings rising from the water, all made of stone, seemed like an
1: an enchanted vision from the tale of Amadis. Indeed, some of our soldiers asked whether it was not all a dream. It is not surprising, therefore, that I should write in this vein. It was all wonderful that I do not know how to describe this first glimpse of things never heard of, seen, or dreamed of before. So after seeing this amazing sight, they just want to kill everybody and take
0: their gold. More or less, unfortunately. You can imagine, like, uh, dreams of the Reconquista and the Amida stories, mixing with these men's experiences, uh, waging war in exotic cities, uh, seizing treasure, enslaving other human beings, and conclude that maybe they did feel like they were living in a fantasy
1: world, completely disconnected from their normal lives. Well, they were pretty far away from any source of authority, like in Spain or even Cuba. It isn't a stretch to imagine
0: that the stories of Amaris and Calafia and Goldrich, California were in the minds of the Spaniards as they waged their bloody wars of conquest. They were acting out their own Amadeus story.
1: California Dreaming. <laughs> This is Zach. And this is Dylan. And you're listening to Decline of the Western Civilizations. We're here at Alvera Street in downtown Los Angeles. If you'd like to learn more about our podcast, find us at www.declineofthewesterncivilizations.com.